Okay, thanks everyone. If you want to take your seats, if you're here in the room with us, uh, if you're watching at home, very warm welcome to you guys as well. Um, I'll try and look at you through the camera, but if I don't, please forgive me because there's a room full of people here that I want to engage with as well. Um, before I get started, I just want to recommend a book. I do this from time to time because it's good to read. Um, it's good to read books as well that will uh, lift your soul and help you to see Jesus in a new way. And this book will definitely do that. It's called Gentle and Lowly. Uh, and if you want a, a book that just explains uh, how Jesus loves you and what his love for you looks like, uh, which I think we all need to know that. <laughs> Whether you're a brand new believer, maybe you don't know Jesus at all, maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for decades and decades, this book will do you so much good. Uh, I've been working through it. In fact, both me and Joe have been going through it. Uh, there's, the chapters are really short. They're about four or five pages each. So each morning I get up, spend five minutes, read a chapter, and it's the sort of book that it's just like being on top of the mountain and just sucking in fresh mountain air. You just start the day and feel like, oh, yes, Jesus is amazing and he loves me so much. Uh, and this book will, I want to recommend it so strongly, I feel like almost buying each of you a copy and, and forcing you to read it and just not letting any of you leave the room until you've read it because it's such a good book. But I won't do that because that wouldn't be very nice. Dan. He's going to say that for me. Okay, if you have a Bible with you, uh, or you can search for the verses on Google, or there's lots of Bible apps on your phone that are really useful. Uh, if you want to find uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, 1 Thessalonians is a letter the, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to uh, a church in the city of Thessalonica, which is in what we would now know as modern-day Greece, uh, he wrote this letter a couple of thousand years ago, uh, a, few, uh, a few years, a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, the Apostle Paul traveled around the Mediterranean, helping, starting new churches and helping them to go deeper in their walk with Jesus. And this is a letter he wrote. Paul actually started the church in Thessalonica. Uh, you can read that story in the book of Acts, chapter 17. Now, he was there for probably only three or four weeks, and then a riot kicked off, and he had to escape the city. And a little while later, he writes this letter back to all the people that he left behind, bringing them some encouragement. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read um, a few verses from the beginning of chapter 5, the first 11 verses, I think it is. I'm going to read those, and then we are going to pray. It says this, Now concerning... The times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. 
Alpha, you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that you love us. And that sometimes makes so little sense to us when we really consider what we're like, what kind of week we've had. And yet the most important thing about us is not how well we think we performed or how good we think we are. It's not any label or identity we could put on ourselves. The most important thing about us is that we're children of the light. That for those of us here today who are believers in you, you've chosen us. You love us. You've chosen to pour out your love upon us again and again. And we just pray as we look at these verses today that you will bring light and clarity and hope into our hearts. Help us to see you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The question I want to ask you at the start here is, might seem like a bit of an odd question, but what, this isn't a question you need to answer, by the way, because you'll probably tell me, but a good question for us to ask is, what time zone are you living in? What time zone are you living in? If I ever travel overseas, what I'll do is I'll keep my watch on my wrist, uh, I'll keep it on, on Amsterdam time, home time, uh, and because I know that my phone will do that magic thing where it changes automatically and becomes the local time. So I'll keep my watch on home time because I want to keep, sounds a bit silly, and Joe thinks I'm a bit silly for doing it. Joe's my wife, by the way. But I do it because that's where my family is. That's where my heart is at home. And whenever I'm traveling, I always want to remember and think of them and know, ah, oh, yes, they're about to get ready for bed. They're about to brush their teeth. They're just coming back from school. They're just on to the next thing. And I'm, I want to keep something of my life wherever I am rooted there. I'm rooted in that time zone, even if I'm five or six hours ahead or behind or wherever it might, might be. It sounds as though I travel loads. I don't normally, and normally it's just to the, the UK, which is just an hour difference, so it doesn't, doesn't really make that much sense. Anyway, Actually, only changing an hour is really confusing. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, particularly if you keep your watch on the wrong time. Anyway, we won't go into that. Too many stories. But um, why am I saying this? Okay, here we go. So the reason that Paul talks about in this, these verses we just read and the previous section at the end of chapter four, they feel like 
a bit of an, an odd addition to the, to the book. Because before that in chapter four and later on in chapter five, Paul gives lots of kind of warm pastoral encouragements and instructions. Uh, he talks about, as Dan was talking about a few weeks ago, he talks about how we should go about our work. He talks about our sex lives. He goes on to talk about how we should prophesy, how we should encourage one another, all very practical life churchy issues. And then slap bang in the middle, he's got these sections on the end times. What is going to happen when Jesus returns? What will happen to us when Jesus returns? And it kind of feels like, how does this fit in? But for Paul, who writes this, it all makes perfect sense to him. Because actually, what's, what he's, the point I think he's trying to get across to us is actually considering what time zone we're in, considering what our future will look like, affects how we live in the here and now. We were talking about this a few weeks ago, that we, are to, we can give ourselves radically in this life because we're confident of what Jesus has for us in the next it affects how we live now, what life looks like for us now. Because Paul came to proclaim this message that there's a king on the throne, that another king, Jesus, has come. Greater than any human king or emperor or lord, Jesus has come, and he's come to bring his kingdom into the world. That to be a Christian doesn't mean you're just isolated on your own, but you're, you're part of the kingdom of God, that he's working out in the world now, but that kingdom won't reach its fullness until Jesus returns. Sometimes we'll use the phrase that we live in, in the now of the kingdom of God, what Jesus is doing here on earth right now, but we also live in the not yet of the kingdom of God. What will come when Jesus returns, what we're still waiting for. And that means, on one hand, we live in a different time zone because we live in the not yet of the future kingdom of God as well as living in the reality of the now. And that means sometimes you'll feel a bit of a, almost like a theological jet lag. As in the time zone, because you are almost from a different time zone, Paul writes in elsewhere in the New Testament that we are citizens of heaven. Our primary identity is actually somewhere else. It's not here on earth. Primarily, firstly, we're citizens of heaven. We belong to another kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of eternity. And that means how you live in this time now, you will often feel a sense of a theological jet lag. What I mean by that is the way that the Bible teaches us to live our lives. What the Bible says is good for human flourishing, God's plan for the world, will look different from what the world around us now says it is. Does that make sense? <laughs> what, what Jesus has, the life he's called us to live, looks different from the life the world around us tells us to live. And when you try and work that out, but I, I want to live like, like the, I want to live like Jesus, I want to live like the way he tells us to live, it will sometimes feel uncomfortable around us. It will sometimes feel like you're almost, you know that feeling of jet lag when you've traveled from a different time zone and then you've come back and suddenly it's 2 a.m. and you're wide awake and there's nothing you can do about it. 
or it's three o'clock in the afternoon and you're at work and there's an important meeting happening, but you're fast asleep. It's that kind of, you just, and the rest of the time you just feel groggy and kind of, oh, this just doesn't, ugh. And it takes a week or so for you to recover. In a sense, often that's what it will feel like to be a Christian in the world around you. It will just feel like, this just doesn't make any sense. That God's called me to live this way, but everyone else is telling me to live like this. It will just feel uncomfortable and a bit weird, and you'll feel a bit like, oh, this doesn't, I just don't quite fit in the world around me. And actually, that's a criticism that perhaps many people in our city and our society might have of Christians, that they might say, yeah, Christians do have this theological jet lag. They're living in the past. They're holding on to this ancient belief, which we all know now is, is, has been proved to be wrong, that it's just old-fashioned, it's just fuddy-duddy, it's just outdated, it's just boring and dull and wrong. That's what many people would think about Christians, that we're just living in the past, that we're living this kind of outdated faith, that the world has moved, we've moved past that. We've progressed beyond those old primitive ways of thinking now. But actually there can be a bit of an almost chronological snobbery with that opinion. Just because something's old doesn't mean it's bad or wrong or incorrect. I need to tell my kids that all the time. Just because I'm older than you, doesn't mean, I, you know, I can't do all these things. Although sometimes I've noticed, anyway, other stories. So I keep getting distracted. But the thing is, we, we are, in one sense, we are, to be a Christian means you are someone of the past. It's in we have this ancient belief, this book written for us 2,000 years ago, full of wisdom that transcends time and we're, we're, we're looking back and we're trying to understand how did they live 2,000 years ago? What did their life look like? How did they follow Jesus then? What does that mean for us now? In one sense, we are people of the past but we're also people of the future. We're people of the kingdom of heaven. We're people trying to live out the better way of life that Jesus has mapped out for us. We're trying to live out his plans and purposes. Actually, the Bible, this book, although it was written 2,000 years ago, is, it, will, it speaks just as powerfully now as it did then. We believe in what we would call the sufficiency of Scripture, that it ha everything you need to know about life is in this book. It's not, that there is, it's not that our world has moved on so, so fast and so far now that this book just can't keep up with it anymore. It's not that God's sitting in heaven thinking, oh, we need to write a few extra chapters because things in the, happened in the world that the Bible just doesn't speak into. That's not true. Everything you need is in this book. And that it takes wisdom and interpretation and it can be confusing. I find it confusing all the time. But if you come to this book, not trying, to, not trying to read it to make it fit into your worldview, but if you come to this book and let it read you, let it transform how you think, how you feel, it will do you good. It will help you to understand how to walk through this life, how to make sense of the world around us.
Because Paul in this, I don't know if you notice in this passage, he says an interesting thing. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, and you might notice in your Bible, if you look closely, that where it says there is peace and security, that's in, he's put that in quotation marks. And it's, it's because he's quoting, most likely, he's quoting what the Roman, the Roman Empire, the Romans would say. That one of the slogans the Romans lived by was to bring peace and security wherever they went. That was one of the defining values of Rome, who were the kind of ruling power at the time, was they came to bring peace and security. If you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, if you haven't, you should, because it's one of the greatest movies of all time. But anyway, at the start of that, it's, it says that uh, there's some text that appears at the start of the movie, and it's just about to show this epic battle where Russell Crowe defeats all these German barbarians. It's like the final battle that the Romans need to face. And when they've beaten the barbarians, it says there'll be, finally, there'll be peace over the whole of the Roman Empire. And yet, if you remember that movie, or if you haven't seen it, don't worry, but what happens in that movie as it goes on is you realize there isn't peace and security. That actually right at the heart of the empire, even the emperors, the leaders themselves, there's this fragileness. There's corruption. There's a disease right at the center. And there isn't peace and security. They're not trying to bring that. It's a, it's a deception. At the very heart of the Roman Empire, they weren't trying to bring peace and security. They were trying to give the impression of peace and security. But that wasn't really their goal. And that's what, all the time, that's, there are things that will call out to you from this life that will say, do this and you'll find peace. Think this way and you'll find security. Do what this person says, you'll find peace. And it's a lie. Or even if there is peace there, it's often a, a limited momentary peace. Elsewhere in the Bible, in Jeremiah, it says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. You can have a, a light healing of a wound, but effectively it will tell you, peace, peace, but it won't offer you any real lasting peace. There are so many things in this world that will offer you that and won't deliver. And actually, we live in a world that has slogans, just like the Roman Empire would, would walk around saying, peace and security. It was a slogan. It was like marketing. But it was false. And all the time, there are slogans that we hear around us. And they might not come from any empire, any governing power, but you don't need to spend too long on social media and you find yourself bombarded with slogans, catchy phrases, catchy memes and things that are supposed to make us feel better about ourselves, which so often don't offer any lasting peace. We might say to someone, just, just be who you are. Just believe in yourself and you can do whatever you want. There are all sorts of nice, 
seemingly well-meaning phrases to try and help us to make sense of the world. But so often there's no lasting peace there. And the only lasting peace you'll find is in Jesus, the way of life he's mapped out for us as his people. And it might seem, sound a bit like I'm making a bit of a fuss about nothing. Like, so what if there's some things on social media that make me feel a bit better about myself? That make the world seem a bit of a brighter, nicer place. What's wrong with those things? But Paul has a warning for us here. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. It's not a sort of thing that Christians like to really talk about, is it? We don't put that on our fridge to kind of pep us up in the mornings or make T-shirts out of it. Well, some people do, but, you know, sudden destruction is coming isn't a very nice catchphrase, is it, really? But there's a reality here that Paul's... He's bringing a warning to us that there is... In the world around us, there are so many things that will offer you peace and security. But in the end, what they'll do is they'll just rob your soul of the goodness of God. Rob your soul of the joy that you can have in him. Rob your life of the eternity that is on offer for you if you choose to follow Jesus Christ. And Paul uses two metaphors here to help us understand it. First of all, he says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What he means is, is that there's no warning. You know, you don't know when the thief is coming. You know, so I'll put, put, put out the, just put out the rubbish jewelry tonight, hide away the best stuff because the thief's coming. He can take that. We don't know when the thief is coming. And then the second metaphor he uses is that sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Not only will Jesus return be come like a thief with no warning, but like a pregnancy it will be inevitable. There'll be no escape. What Jesus has started, he will come back to complete, to fulfill his mission. So what does that mean for us now? If you're a follower in Jesus, what Paul says at the end of the passage here is that this is for our encouragement. This is to bring us hope. Paul reminds us that we're children of the light now. We're, we're resurrection people. In Colossians it says we're rescued from the kingdom of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of his son. You've been transferred out of the darkness of this world into his kingdom. In 1 Peter, it says we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, we no longer need to fear the faith. We get to look forward to the result of the pregnancy. It actually should fill us with hope 
But when we look around and we see a, a fallen world where there are so many promises of goodness which at the end of the day lead to destruction, to know that Jesus is coming again should bring us great hope. To know that one day we get to be with him forever should be a source of great encouragement to us. So how do we respond to this? Paul gives us three ways to respond. First of all, he says, be awake. That's why I asked that question at the start. Maybe you need to ask yourself it again. What time zone are you living in? What, how are you interpreting the world around you? Are you just living solely in this time zone? That you are being everything the world says to you, you're just receiving all the time. You say, okay, yeah, I should do this now. I should think like this. I should, oh, this, that. It's confusing. But when you actually wake up and realize, no, I'm not, I'm not made for this world. God's called me to something greater. God's called me into his kingdom of his son, to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. When we wake up to that, it means that sometimes in this world you'll feel that jet lag that we're talking about but you'll feel a wonderful peace as well Thinking it doesn't matter if everyone else thinks differently from me that's okay I want to be like Jesus that's far more important so wake up to the time zone you're living in next he says to be sober when you're sober minded you think clearly Paul's not, this is a metaphor Paul's using, but he's not saying never drink alcohol. That's not what he means by this. But he's saying think, think clearly. Again, if we live in the wrong time zone, we can get so deluded, so confused. But yet use this book, the Bible, to help you think soberly and clearly about the world around you. If you feed on this book, it will strengthen you it will give you hope. You get to interpret the world in a, different, in a different way. Let me give you an example of this. So often in this world, people these days will talk about climate change. Particularly, they'll talk about the climate emergency around us. And so often, that can, the language provokes fear and anxiety amongst us. But when you put yourself, uh, when you interpret the world through being a citizen of heaven and how the Bible has instructed us and teaches us to live, you realize, yes, we are, we're mandated to care for our creation. This is God's world that he's made. He's instructed us as his children, his people, to care for the world around us, to look after it. So yeah, we should be concerned about the climate, concerned about the planet we live in, but we live, we can live optimistically trusting in Jesus. It means I can, I can care about the climate, but it doesn't need to cause me any fear. I live trusting, hoping in him. Because ultimately we're part of a different kingdom. We trust in him for our future, for our hope. And there's nothing to fear for us. So he says, be awake, be sober. Finally, he says, be armed. 
And he gives us instruction, put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The wonderful good news for you is that God has equipped you and will equip you to live out, to be a follower of Jesus, even when it feels like you're jet-lagged, even when it feels like you don't quite fit in the world around you. He's given what Romans 13 describes as the armor of light that you can wear. See, and what God does is he doesn't just give us tools to critique the world around us, but he gives us tools actually to embody, to live out the alternative. That's our primary calling as believers in Jesus, is not just to criticize the world around us. What you believe about this is wrong. Yeah, it's ugly, that's horrible. That's not how we're supposed to live. What we get to do is say, actually, Jesus has written for us a, a better story. There's a, a better way to live. That what the Bible teaches isn't, isn't restrictive. It, isn't, it doesn't kind of uh, cause us to have to shut down our life. So often that's what we believe, or pe- that's what people will tell us that the Bible teaches, particularly about issues around gender and sexuality. Oh, no, the Bible will just oppress you. The Bible will just tell you just to kind of hide all your emotions and your feelings and lock it all away. No. What the Bible gives us is a beautiful picture of how God has intended sexuality to be worked out in our lives. He's written a a better story for what that's to look like. And when we embody that, when we live that out, it will release you. It will help you to live a life of fullness, help you to live a life of finding intimacy with Jesus, which is by far the more important thing. I could say much more about that, but we actually talked about that a few weeks ago. I'm sure we'll talk about it again. Now, before I move on and finish, perhaps you're still struggling to think, I I don't understand how a God of love, if this is who the God of the Bible claims to be, I don't know how a God of love could bring sudden destruction. Maybe that's your wrestling with those verses. How would God allow this? And yes, he is a God of love. But you should be very careful that you don't, so often we can take God's sort of positive characteristics that we really love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, and we can somehow divorce them and separate them away from bits of God's character that we find a bit difficult to get our heads around. His justice, the wrath of God, his holiness. And we take those things and we say, well, we'll put those things over there in a box, you know, to be discussed and put that on a shelf. And what I'll focus on instead is the fact that God loves me and I won't worry about those other things. But actually, they all come together once you start separating bits of God away, you'll, what you'll end up with is not the God of the Bible. The God you'll end up building your life upon is not the God that we find in this book, the God that we worship here every week. See, if you want to fully understand the love and mercy of God, you have to also understand his holiness. How God hates sin 
because ultimately it's a rebellion against him. It's a choice to worship something else, something other than God. But if you just ignore that, you'll, you'll never understand the depths of his mercy until you realize the depths of the sin in your own heart. And when you begin to realize just the foolishness, the selfishness, just the horrific nature of so much that goes on within my heart, you then suddenly realize, but yet he still loves me. What mercy, what grace. If you really want to know his love, then you have to lean into his holiness. But the wonderful promise that comes here at the end of this passage is that despite all of our weaknesses and our failings, the confidence we have is that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've chosen to build your life upon him, it means salvation has already been obtained for you. That through his death and resurrection, he's, he's, as we were talking about earlier, he's, he's already transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. That you're already children of the light. Dan, could you pass me that book I was mentioning earlier? Thanks. You see, there's a wonderful verse that this book unpacks here a little bit from John chapter six, where Jesus says, all that, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Wonderful encouragement for us that if you're a believer in Jesus, you can't be cast out. The writer of this book, Dane Orland, he says this, we cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out and the walls go up. Yet with Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required, first at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with him in death. So that's the great promise of the Bible that your sins and failings and weaknesses, what they do is they, they, they actually qualify you to come and receive his mercy to come and receive his grace and all we have to do is just to keep coming to him again and again and again receive his forgiveness he goes on to say the only thing required to enjoy such love is to come to him isn't that good news the only thing required to enjoy God's love is just to come to him, to ask him to take us in. He does not say, whoever comes to me with sufficient contrition, 
or whoever comes to me feeling bad enough for their sin, or whoever comes to me with redoubled efforts, he says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. That's the good news we have this morning. But all you need to do today is to come to Jesus, and he'll never cast you out. You come to Jesus and you receive lasting peace and security for this life, peace, security, hope now, but for eternity as well. Let me pray and then the band are gonna come and lead us in worship. Jesus, I thank you that you have, by your death and resurrection, you took the wrath of God upon yourself. The punishment that we deserve for our rebellion against you, you took for us. You've taken the punishment that we deserved and in exchange, you've given us forgiveness, liberty and freedom in you, joy, hope, and lasting and final permanent peace and security. And I thank you, the great promise of your word is that we're not destined for wrath, but salvation has been obtained. And now we will never be cast out because of your wonderful love for us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just come and breathe that truth into life in our hearts. I need to know that today. That good news, I need to hear it again. And I pray for anyone who's hearing that for the first time, who isn't a follower of you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would put faith in their heart to be able to respond to you and say, for the first time, Jesus, I want to come to you. I want to turn my back on my old life. I want to put my trust in you. And I want to receive this wonderful, pure, holy love. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us unconditionally. Amen.